Well, if you will take your copy of God's word and turn back to the book of First Thessalonians. Chapter five is where we're going to be this morning. mentioned to Gerald this morning just how beautiful this book is, how beautiful this letter is from from Paul to this church in this place called Thessalonica. It just is such a beautiful testimony of what the power of God can do among a group of people. Um, Paul says the very beginning of the letter, um, just recalling how the word had come to them and how they had embraced the word in much affliction, he says. Can you imagine All of these social pressures, all of these cultural pressures that were there and existed. And they understood that to that to receive this word that Paul had brought them uh, would cause even more affliction, would bring even more suffering into their lives. And yet they embraced it. And Paul says you embraced it as the word of God and not the word of man. And it indeed brought more suffering into their life. And Paul recalls the time that he had with them, the sweet time of fellowship where he nurtured them and rebuked them and loved them and encouraged them and exhorted them. He loved them so much that he was willing to part with Timothy so that he could go back and be with them and to continue to pour into them and love them. And upon getting this report back from Timothy, he was encouraged because he was so afraid that the affliction and the suffering and all of the things that they faced for, for following Christ might ensnare, might, might allow them to fall into the snares of the enemy. And yet he is encouraged to see that they are steadfast. This church had not only embraced the gospel, but they began to live it out in such a way that they became, they, they became a testimony, a powerful testimony to the surrounding regions And Paul says, you have been such a testimony to them. There's nothing left for me. I don't even have to go and say anything because of the faith that they have seen from your life. And among that report back from Timothy, he sees that they are questioning. They have all these questions and they're confused about what they have learned about what God will do to bring everything to its appropriate end. Can we identify with that this morning? Like the Thessalonians, we struggle to know all the answers. And even as we walk through this book of Revelation together, we are just grappling with this. I'm so appreciative of a pastor who's humble enough to stand up here and unfold the word for us and is humble enough to say, I don't have all of it figured out. But the truth is, God doesn't intend for us to have all the puzzle pieces in just the right places, does he? He's given us what we need. He's given us what we need. And that is the message from Paul back to these believers in Thessalonica. He doesn't come back and give them all of the puzzle pieces or tell them how they all fit together. He encourages them to go back, to reexamine what they already know, to see what kind of an impact that should have in their lives right now. And he reminds them that God has revealed all that we need to know. So let's read this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And I've entitled this message this morning, Living in Light of the End. And yes, there's a little bit of a play on words there. That we are to be people of the light as our knowledge of what the end will bring enlightens our steps even now. So living in light of the end. And let's read this passage together. 1 through 11 in chapter 5. Follow along with me. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
While people, are, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains will come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who uh, get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Father, would you help us this morning through your spirit? And we are thankful that you have given us your spirit for this help to help us to interpret your word rightly this morning. And Father, that that right interpretation would lead us into proper application, God, that we would live in light of your word, that we wouldn't stop at just being hearers of your word this morning, Father, but you would help us to be doers of your word. Thank you, Father, for this word that you have given us. Thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us. What an incredible gift of grace. Father, thank you for it. And thank you for your spirit's help in understanding it today, Father. Lord, I pray that we would see that all that you have revealed to us about what the end will bring, Father, is really there to encourage us in how to walk now. So, Father, I pray that we would get that glimpse, that we would hear Paul's heart this morning as he writes not only to these brothers and sisters in this place called Thessalonica a long time ago. But, Father, we would hear his heart to us today. We would hear his exhortation, Father, and that we would evaluate our own life in it, Father, that we would measure our life against your word today. And that, Father, through your spirit, you would empower us to pursue living it out. So, God, we give you this time and we're thankful for the gift that it is to do this together. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first thing that we see here is the truth of Christ's return. The truth of his return. Read with me back verses 1 and 2. Paul says this. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He is addressing different issues having to do with the end of times here. And he had just addressed an issue where many had thought that the day of the Lord had already come. Some had questions about what the day of the Lord would mean for those who had already died. Would they be called up? Would they be a part of that too? And so Paul is delicately and, and, and uh, graciously dealing with these issues for these brothers and sisters. And now he turns to the time and seasons What they want to know, one commentarian wrote, what they want to know accurately is something that they can't that can't be known at all. That's true for us, isn't it? What they want to know accurately is not something that can be known at all. How frustrating is that? How many times do I read God's word and I'm like, man, why didn't you just tell us this? Or why didn't you give us more insight into this? Have you felt that going through Revelation? Why didn't you just go on and give us the answer to this question? Why didn't you just fill in this gap for me? Why didn't you give us these pieces to the puzzle? And they wanted to know what all to expect. And Paul uses this phrase here, this curious phrase concerning the times and seasons. And this is not the only place that this phrase pops up in the New Testament. In fact, 
It's there four times in the Greek Bible. And every single time this phrase is used, it is concerning matters of eschatology. It's concerning matters of the end. The times and seasons. And Paul says now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. I've already told you everything that you need to know about this. Paul is using reminder language here. He's not going on and answering questions further. He's reminding them of what they already know. He reiterates the significance of what they already do know. And what Paul is calling them to do is lay out in faith through it. This is what I have taught you. Now your response should be of faith. We see Jesus use this term in Acts 1, 7 and 8 when he says this. Listen to this. He says he said to them, speaking to his disciples right before he ascended, um, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, he says. But notice what he says in verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So on one hand, Jesus says it's not for you to know the times and the season, but I have something for you to do. This you can be sure of, that you will receive the Spirit and you will be my witness. And brothers and sisters, the truth is we still live in this church age, don't we? We still live in the fulfillment of what Jesus said would take place. We are still in pursuit of the Great Commission. And so when I hear this phrase, it's once again a reminder that we're not going to we're not going to have all of the knowledge that we wish that we had about the end times. But there is a task before us that God has called us to. And that should be our focus. And this is one of the things that Paul is doing to remind them, to focus them on the mission that's before them, to focus them on what they are doing right there and then. And this is what they do know in verse two. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's saying that his return will be sudden and without warning. That's what this illustration tells us. One person wrote it like this. It is inevitable, but unpredictable. And it's going to be like a thief in the night for believers and non-believers. We don't know when it is coming. Okay, it's going to be unpredictable, but it is inevitable. And his return is imminent. That's just as true then as it is for now. His return is imminent. It is inevitable, but it's unpredictable. This term day of the Lord, this phrase day of the Lord is just loaded through the scriptures. It's common in the Old Testament prophets. And through there, it refers to the great and terrible day when Yahweh will intervene to execute judgment. I had several passages down for your benefit. I narrowed it down to one. Listen to what Isaiah 13 says, verses 6 through 16. Listen to the language that he uses in referring to this coming day of the Lord. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven, uh, for the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind uh, than the gold of offer. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. 
uh, at the wrath of the Lord of hosts on the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. That's not a pretty picture. And we get this all through the Old Testament prophets that are pointing to this coming day of the Lord, this day when God will return to execute judgment. But and as we've seen through our study of Revelation already, this is going to be the worst day in history, but it's also going to be the best day in history. This will be a day that Jesus returns for his people. I saw a tweet not long ago that gets at the heart of this kind of paradoxical statement about this day. It says this in Jesus, our judgment day was moved from the future to the past. Why is that the case? Because our judgment has been meted out on Christ as our substitute savior. Amen. He has swallowed every drop of God's wrath for us and for our sin. And if you are covered by his blood today, then you will not stand under the judgment that is to come on the day of the Lord. And that's the beautiful paradox of this. So in the Old Testament and the prophets, it also pointed forward to this. Listen to Joel 2, 31 through 32. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So we see that it's going to be the worst day in history, but it's going to be the best day in history for those who are in Christ. And all of the scriptures, the entire story points forward to this day. This thief imagery that Paul uses here also is found throughout the scriptures. And I believe that it has more to do with unbelievers than believers. Yes, it's going to be sudden, but Paul's use of it here is more for the unbelievers. And all through scripture, this imagery is used to point to unexpectedness and unwelcomeness. Listen to a few passages from the New Testament. Matthew 24, 43 through 44. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Second Peter 310. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation 33. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent, for you will not wake up. I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Romans 16, 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and seen exposed. So we see this language that Paul is using that's not foreign to the rest of the scriptures that speaks of this suddenness, speaks of this unexpectedness, it speaks of unwelcomeness. And Paul is saying that is all you need to know about it. I've taught you what you need to know concerning the time and seasons. So Paul's reminder here of the things these believers have come to know or should know is not intended to stir them to a consuming pursuit of trying to unlock all the mysteries that surround God's revealed end. It instead serves as an exhortation to them to lay their lives out through the certain promise of that end in faith in a way that would profoundly shape their lives in the here and now. 
And this is what Paul is trying to get us to understand as he deals with these questions that are coming to him, deals with this confusion. And it reiterates to us again that in his infinite wisdom, God has given us everything that we need in his word. It is complete and it is sufficient to live how he has called us to live and to know everything that we need to know in order to do that and to pursue him and to rest in his sovereignty in it. And so what Paul then offers us are contrasting postures between those who are outside of Christ and those who are in Christ towards the coming of this day and towards the nature of the times and seasons. He gives us contrasting postures. Read it with me in verses three through five. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. For you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So what Paul is hoping to convey to them and encouraging them and comforting them really can be wrapped up in this. The day of the Lord does not pose a threat to you. That's one of the things that Paul wants them to understand. The day of the Lord does not pose a threat to you. But, brothers and sisters, and we need to hear this section. But Paul does affirm the constant danger in which the believer lives. Okay, we're going to see this in this contrast. And the contrast begins with the posture of those who are outside of Christ. Look back at verse three. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Do you hear their cry? Peace and security. There is peace and security. One of the things that we need to understand about the book or the letters of uh, written to these believers in Thessalonica is a little bit of the cultural understanding of the day or the cultural context of the day. Thessalonica was a key Roman stronghold and they lived during a time that is referred to as the Pax Romana. It's the Roman Pact. And the Pact went a little bit something like this. It was a brilliant move on behalf of Rome. Rome was building an empire. And in many ways, Rome made life better for everybody that they conquered. It was something. They would build roads and they would develop things and bring it into the, uh, the, the, the present uh, century. They were bringing everything and updating everything and, and making it better. And so the Pax Romana was really this invitation by Rome to people that if you bend your knee to Rome, then there will be peace. Rome will give you peace. Rome will give you peace and advancement and we will make your lives better. It was a brilliant move by Rome because in many places they could conquer places without shedding any blood. And it helped the people in this propaganda to trust them. And even in the midst of this conquering these people and the oppression that they brought, they said that we were going to make your lives better. And so people would bend their knees because they wanted the peace that Rome could provide. But brothers and sisters, it was a facade of peace. It was a facade of peace. One person referred to it as the empty and pragmatic promise of peace. The scriptures refer to such a thing. Jeremiah 6, 13 and 14. For from the least of the greatest, or excuse me, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Peace is a facade. And so often there are so many different ways that our culture extends the invitation of peace, isn't there? 
This was true for for the day of the Thessalonian believers, and it's true for our day today. Our culture extends invitations for peace. If you bend your knee to this, or if you pursue this, or if you have this, then you will have peace. And I've been thinking about how this plays out in our own culture. Here are some things that I've come up with. What about career? If you give yourself to your career... If you get the right career and if you advance in the right way in your career, if you bend your knee to this and give your life to it, it will bring peace to you. What about a 401k or retirement? If you just build the nest egg big enough, right? Here's the target number. Everybody's got the number that they're working to. If you can just get to that number, then you will have peace. You will have security. Everything will be okay. What about health and wellness? That one was certainly dashed this past year, wasn't it? If we do enough to promote good health, if we pursue good health and wellness and we are living in certain a way, then everything will be okay. You'll have peace. What about politics? If you believe the certain things, if you pursue the right things, if the certain people are in power, certain legislation is in place, then we will have peace. Everything will be okay. What about living in the right place or having the right life or having the right stuff? Our culture extends these invitations to peace and to security that if you just do X, then you will have the peace and security that you need. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things unless we give ourselves over to them. And they become the basis of our hope for for peace and security. Graduates who were just standing up here. Before us in the next season of life, the culture will begin to extend these invitations to you. That your next five years have to be lived thus and so, and you have to make a certain amount of money and you have to live in a certain place and you have to do X, Y and Z. and You have to start a family at this time. and You have to set yourself up for the future. All of these extended invitations from our culture for peace and security. But anything that our culture has to offer is only a facade. Its foundation will crumble. And Paul speaks to that here, doesn't he? While people are crying peace and security, sudden destruction will come and they will not escape, he says. One person used the illustration of being in a dead sleep and being woken up by a flashlight shined in your face. You ever had that happen? You're dazed and confused and have no idea what's going to happen. You see, the truth is the deception of the facade of peace and security is going to crumble and it's going to lead to destruction. That's the picture that Paul paints here. And he says there will be no escape from it. The truth is everyone is keenly aware of the groaning of a broken creation. We see that in Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In fact, that groaning that we feel often causes us to look around for any kind of peace and security we can find. And this is how people live in light of this brokenness, in light of this groaning. I have to have peace and security. We'll latch on to anything that promises it. And even those who are outside of Christ are keenly aware of it. But the contrast beginning in verse four. But you, Paul is speaking to believers, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. 
Back to Romans 8, there's a contrast even there. Verse 23, and not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Do you see the contrast that's there? All of creation is waiting, is groaning. We are groaning too. We share in that groaning, but there is an anticipation behind it. There is a groaning and we lean into the groaning because we know that the groaning will not have the last word. We're groaning in anticipation of the end of the groaning that God is going to bring about. It's different. We all feel the groaning, but there's a different posture for those who are in Christ. And we who are in Christ are not in darkness, the the text says there. I love Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus. Ephesians 1. Why don't you flip over there for just a second? It's not very far. Turn back to the left there a little bit. Go to the book of Ephesians. This is one of the three passages that was the focus of my dissertation. I've been spending a lot of time in this passage and love Paul's prayer here. But I want you to listen to the aspect of illumination that's here. Listen to what is ours as believers. Listen to what Paul is praying that believers would realize. Okay? Listen to Paul as he prays for us here. Verse 16. Do not cease to give, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Now listen, if you are in Christ this morning, you have all of the spirit that you're going to get. Okay? He's not praying for more of the Spirit. He's praying that the Spirit would do within us what is the function of the Spirit of truth to do. Okay? He's praying that the Spirit would do this work in us. And listen to that work. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That word revelation there. Apocalypse is the same word that is used for the book of Revelation. And the title of our series is the unveiling. That's what that word means. It's unveiling. It's unveiling to us... Reality that up until this point we have not been able to see. It's unveiling to us reality. So Paul is praying that the Father of glory may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, unveiling reality so that we can see things as God sees them. So that we wouldn't get caught up in the facade and the deception of this world, but we would be able to see what is really real. And that is rooted in our relationship with God. That's what he says. And of revelation in the knowledge of him. Brothers and sisters, the more closely we walk with Jesus, the more, the greater grasp on reality we will have. Amen? The closer we walk with Jesus, the greater grasp on reality we will have. Okay? That's what Paul is praying, that you would grasp reality, that you would see it. Listen to the work that the Spirit is going to do in our hearts to allow this. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That you may know three things. He wants us to have our hearts enlightened by the Spirit so that we would know three things. And listen to what they are. That you may know, number one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Who are we in redemption? We are his prized possession in redemption. We are his inheritance. And then number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Those are the three spiritual realities that are ours in Christ Jesus. And Paul is praying that reality would be unveiled for us through the work of the Spirit, that we can see them and live in light of those truths. We do not live in darkness. The light of truth has been shown into our hearts through the Spirit, through Christ. And one commentator wrote this, The greater problem for these believers and for us 
in the contemporary context of abundance and influence is to live in this context as Christ's people. And thus is an alternate to the present world and its values. Can I put it like this to us? You know what our greatest danger is in light of the day of the Lord? Is that we would forget it and begin to sleepwalk. We wouldn't live in the light of truth. But that instead we would begin to sleepwalk through our lives. And we would give ourselves over to all of these extended invitations of peace and security in our lives. That we would neglect this walk with Christ so that we would be caught up in the deception of just what our eyes see and our hearts feel. And we wouldn't live in light of what's really real. Paul goes on to say, for you are children of the light, children of the day. The present world is full of darkness. But what is the truth of Colossians 1.13? That he has translated us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has brought us into truth and shown that truth into our hearts. We are not of the darkness. We are not of the night. We are people of the day, people of the light. And the day of the Lord passes over into the day or light in which Christians pass. It illuminates our life now. That day of the Lord almost shines a light for us to see what we're moving toward. That's the truth of the day of the Lord for those who are in Christ. It's a different posture. And so our hope that is rooted in the one who has promised the coming of this day illuminates our hearts with wisdom and understanding that causes us to press into him and live in light of the reality of his will. He, Jesus, is our confidence. He is our peace. He is our hope. He is our rest in the midst of the crazy, the chaos and the brokenness. Where are you looking for peace? Where are you looking for peace this morning? Because the truth is, our comfort doesn't come through our knowing all of the details and a specific timeline. Our comfort comes through his presence and the hope to which he has called us that is founded in his faithfulness. The question is, can you rest in his faithfulness without having it all figured out? Can we rest in his goodness? Can we rest in his sovereignty? So based on that contrast, Paul offers an exhortation. The exhortation is found in verses 6 through 10. And his exhortation is we are to be day people and not night people. As day people, we are not to be found sleeping during the day. Okay? He changes this in verse 6 by saying, so then. Here's the purpose. Here's the exhortation. So then, he writes, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. He tells us a few things in this exhortation. Number one, we are to be alert. We are to be alert. And he talks about sleeping and drunkenness as both activities that take place in the night. And those are not to be associated with the believers because we are no longer night people. We are day people. So don't be caught sleeping and don't be caught being drunk, he writes. This word alert here is a military preparedness term. It's as if we are to be alert and out on patrol. This past Sunday, we were talking about prayer in the student ministry, and Daniel Wright was in there. He served as a Marine and did uh, uh, served over in Iraq for a little while. And I asked him, I said, whenever you left your compound there in Iraq, were you ever ill-prepared? And what was his answer? No. When you leave your compound there, what were you prepared for? What was his answer? Whatever. They were always prepared. Because when they left the comfort and security of their compound, they knew that there was a threat everywhere. 
And so their heads were on a swivel, as it said. They were constantly alert. They were prepared. They were battled up. They were ready for whatever would come. And this is the terminology that Paul uses here, that we are to be alert. And he says that we're to be alert by putting on some armor. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What did those two pieces of armor cover? I think this is uh, important. What did those two pieces of armor cover? He doesn't go head to toe. Our hearts and our heads. Our hearts and our heads. And he uses this triad that we see all through Scripture, faith, hope, and love. Look at what he says, this breastplate of faith and love. Faith, brothers and sisters, is what focuses our hearts. This is the purpose for revelation. This is the purpose for anything in the Scriptures that tell us about what's coming in the end. It is to focus our hearts to be reminded that he is good, to be reminded that he is bringing all of this to his appropriate end. It's not for us to know the time and seasons. It's for us to rest in his sovereignty. And we are people of faith. And when we put that breastplate of faith on, it focuses our hearts on that. And we are not held captive by what our emotions do in response to the things of life. Because our faith is anchored in the foundation of his sovereignty. Love. What does love do? Love compels our hearts towards the right things. If our hearts are anchored in the faith that he is bringing the story about, and it is his story and not my story, my story is a small part of it. If my hope is anchored there, or my faith is anchored there, then my love will be compelled in the right direction. It will not just be carried about by whatever my desire tells me. I'm going to be living in accordance with rightly aimed love because my faith focuses my heart. So the breastplate, and then he says that we should put on the hope of salvation, the helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope is the certainty of our future. The certainty of our future anchors my present experience. The certainty of our future anchors my present experience. So everything that is given to us in Scripture about what is coming should anchor us today. It anchors my current experience today and helps me to live in faith. It focuses my love And it helps me to stay anchored in his truth. And what is the confidence of this? I love what Paul says. For God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this truth changes everything for the believer. Let's break it down. We are not destined for wrath. My favorite verse in all of the scriptures is Romans 8.1. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I often refer to it as my I'm good verse. Whatever happens in this life, I'm good. Right? Everything can fall apart. I'm good because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm in Christ Jesus, so there is no condemnation for me. That should cause a standing ovation or something. Yes! That is our I'm good verse, right? We are not destined for wrath. That changes the way we think and look towards the day of the Lord. We are not destined for wrath because we are in Christ. He is our safety. And man, listen, this world poses a thousand different threats, even to us sitting in this building right here. True safety can only be found in Christ. That's it. We should communicate that to our kids as a side. From a student pastor's heart, we shouldn't seek to wrap them in bubble wrap and and make them to think that there's no threats. No, we're, we're honest about the threats in life and we're honest that we have an enemy. And true safety can only be found in Christ. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I do know that if I'm in Christ, it doesn't matter. Make sense? 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those. We are not destined for wrath. But he says to obtain salvation. My daughter's favorite verse. For he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete that work. And we are destined to obtain the salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved through sanctification. We will be saved through glorification. And we are marching towards that day. And when that great and terrible day comes, we will obtain the salvation once for all. We will be made whole by him. That's the salvation that we have in him. I love what one commentator said, and it's so relevant to this. He was writing about something else, but this is so relevant. He says this salvation is salvation from as well as salvation unto. Here's the truth. I think so often we only think of salvation as being salvation from from our sin, from hell, from any of these things, from all of those things. The truth is, brothers and sisters, we are saved from those things, but we're also saved unto God. First, Peter tells us that he has saved us in order to bring us back to himself. He is doing a work and bringing us to obtain our salvation fully through sanctification. Are we pressing towards that day? I'm so afraid that often we look at it as just salvation from and then we just live our lives. It'll happen one day. God has saved us from and he has saved us to. And Paul is hitting on that here, I think. And even if confusion lingers about the end, we will not face condemnation. That is sure. That is sure. We will obtain the completion of our salvation. That is sure. And who we are and who we are destined to be is sure. So even in the midst of the, com- uh, the, the confusion of what is to come, those things are true. And what else is true is this. And this is where I think the Thessalonians were really struggling. Christians are those who are destined for afflictions now, but not for wrath for eternity. Do you hear the contrast in that? The people in the surrounding culture around Thessalonica were, I mean, they thought these people were nuts. Rome is offering us peace. Rome is offering us security. Why would you trust in this person called Jesus? Why would you do this that's bringing affliction into your life? And family members were like, why would you do this? It's bringing affliction to you. But they understood that God's people, although they were destined for affliction in this life, they had eternal peace and security in him. And that's the contrast. Everybody around them was settling for the facade of peace and security in what Rome could give them and what all of these things from the culture could give them. But they did not have eternal security and peace in Christ. Do you trust? Do you believe that? That following Jesus will bring affliction. It will bring difficulty. But we are not destined for wrath. We are not destined for wrath. And all of this is because of the third aspect of this statement. It is through Christ who died for us. You see, he is the one who has passed through death and conquered it so that all in Christ might live in him forever and As I think and tie this to our present study in Revelation, I thought about this this week and just really was mindful of this this week. I'm so glad that I don't have to fear the wrath of the Lamb because I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb. That changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything about my life right now. It changes everything about the way that I view the future. I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb, so I do not have to fear the wrath of the Lamb. And Paul ends this section of Scripture by saying that we are to encourage one another with these things. 
That's the truth for Revelation. That's the truth for First and Second Thessalonians. Anytime the scriptures speak of the future, it's always in a manner to encourage us. It's not to confuse. It's not to divide. It's not to cause us fear and trepidation. It's always to encourage us. And one of the primary functions of the church is reminding each other. This is the beauty of the body. When we struggle, we have brothers and sisters around us that are just reminding us of the truth of the gospel. And most of the time, I just need to be reminded to believe. We just need to be reminded to believe the truths of the gospel. And these things are written in order that we would believe. When I look around this world, it is very difficult to find encouragement. Would you agree with that? It is very easy to become discouraged. And any encouragement that we may find is often short-lived and easily dashed. But God's word reminds us of the living hope that is ours in Christ. It reminds me that there is a peace that passes understanding. It reminds me that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It reminds me that peace is rooted in the reality of his appearing And the truth of his word and his promises changes everything about the way we view and live our lives here and now. So even as we proceed and continue to work through this difficult text in Revelation, the question for us is, do we trust him? Do we know his goodness, not just in a mental ascent sort of way, but are we willing to lay our lives out through it? Are we willing to trust his faithfulness? And do we see how that really changes everything about the way that we live today? Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for how it encourages us, Lord. Thank you for how it challenges us today. God, I pray that we would be people of the day, people of the light, Father. I pray that we would press into you each and every day, Father, so that you may open to us reality, so that we can live in light of reality, Father. And the surrounding world, if they see us responding to the situations of life from the standpoint of your reality, are going to see a difference in us. It's going to inform our hearts and inform our emotions and inform our attitudes and inform our living. God, I pray that we would be marked as those who live with implicit trust in who you are. And God, just as Paul admonishes these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica for us to today, we don't have to have the end all figured out in order to do that. You've given us everything that we need and reminded us that our lives are secure in you if we are in Christ. And Father, I pray for anyone who may be in this room today who can't say that they know that safety and know that peace and know that security because they have not trusted in Christ. Father, I pray that you'd move in their hearts today and compel them to trust you, Father. Open to them the gift of faith to respond to you in that way, Lord. God, I pray that we would be loud about the safety and peace and security that we have in you, Father. I pray that the world wouldn't look at the church and see us wringing our hands with anxiety, Father, but see boldness, see a difference in the way that day people live even as others live in deception and under the facade of peace and security. God, I pray that you would guard our hearts against giving ourselves over to those invitations of peace and security. God, I pray that we would rest in you alone. God, I pray that you would guard the hearts and minds of these graduates in that way today, Father, as they make key decisions for the rest of their lives, Lord. I pray that they would just walk confidently with you each and every day, trusting that you 
have got their lives and that you have a purpose for their life that's in rhythm with his purpose, God. And I pray, Lord, that they would just trust you in that way, Father. So thank you for this morning for your word. Thank you for our time to share in it. And we give this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond with worship. The altar's open. Pastors are here to pray with you. If you'd like, let's stand together and worship.